But Mark chapter 8, verse 11 through 21, let's, uh, let's see what Jesus would say to the church today, amen? I'll start reading in verse 11, and Mark reports this after what was a fantastic miracle, multiplying the bread for 4,000 people, it says this. Now, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, speaking of Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring the bread, and this is now speaking of the disciples. The disciples had forgotten to bring the bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned the disciples, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This is the word of the Lord. Some time ago, a friend of mine brought me on a sailboat. Never been on a sailboat before, and he took me on a sailboat, uh, me and a buddy, across to the Channel Islands. And he being a seasoned captain, remember him telling me a few things. One was, it's a straight shot from here to the islands, but you have to watch out for a few things. So we went across the channel. He began to enlighten me the fact that this was one of the busiest channels in the world, as far as he was concerned. And um, as we made our way about halfway across the channel, he pointed my attention in the direction to the right, and he said, you see that little dot on the horizon there? I'm all, yeah, it's a little tugboat, right? He's all, no, that is a freighter, <laughs> biggest boat you've ever seen, and it's coming at us at about 30 miles an hour. I'm all, but yeah, it's far off over there. I'm reasoning with this captain, and I'm like, we'll be fine. He's all, we'll be fine because we're going to do some math, and we're going to figure out how to avoid it when it gets here because it's going to come up on you faster than you realize. And then over on the left, he said the same thing. There's one over there, and they're going to cross. Um, and here's the thing about those giant uh, transporting freighters. They're going fast, and they're really big, and they can't stop. So it's really up to you to be mindful of what's coming your direction. And he would just start to use his math. Like he'd have this compass on the, on the deck and he'd be like, you can line this up and you can see where they're at over there and where you're going to be and how fast you're going. And with precision, you can determine where you're going to line up and how fast you need to be to avoid the problem. I was like, that's awesome. I'm really glad you're on the bro boat with me, bro. And we made it safely to the other side. 
But I'll never forget that day where he said, we're in a boat, we're going in a worthy to a worthy destination, but there are problems on both sides and you gotta be aware of those problems. Now as we pick up Mark chapter eight, Jesus pulls his disciples into a boat. And in a manner of speaking, if I, if I can extend that analogy, he's saying something similar to you and I. First to his disciples, but also to you and I in a little building in downtown Santa Barbara, those watching from afar and outside as well. We're going on a worthy destination, I think Jesus would say to all who are following him. You follow me, I'm gonna take you on an adventure. I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna give you a taste of what the eternal kind of life is like. To him who believes in me, to her who believes in me, out of their innermost being, John would, would report Jesus saying, will flow rivers of living water. Jesus makes stunning promises to those who follow him. But in this little vignette, he's also saying, you gotta watch out for both sides. There are gonna be problems on both sides of the boat. And in this passage, we see a couple of those problems. I wanna give you problem number one, and it comes by way of a question. He says to the Pharise uh, of the Pharisees, why does this generation seek a sign, right? Let me just read that passage really quick. The, the, the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. And the original language there connotes a, a type of frustration deep down in the gut, like, oh, like an, think of exasperated Jesus, like, oh, really? And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, a couple things. We see all throughout the Bible examples of people asking God to show up in their lives. We even see him asking for signs. I think of Gideon and others like him. And they get no rebuke, right? There's nothing wrong per se with asking God to give you a hint or a sign or to show you the direction that you're supposed to go. The way the Pharisees seem to be wanting, and, and you don't even need to look at this particular text, but all of Mark is more of a skeptical, cynically based affront to the authority of Jesus. In fact, they say such things in that first, it says that in the first line, they're seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Often the gospel writer John will use the word sign as more than just a miracle, but as a testimony to the authority of Jesus Christ that he is who he says he is. And this is precisely what the Pharisees still seem to doubt. They're not doubting the miracles. He just, he, just, he just multiplied all of these loaves and sardines for about 4,000 people right before this. They've seen, the, they've seen the miracles. But if you've read other parts of the Gospels, they attribute it to the devil. In other words, what I, what I want you to see here is there's a difference between struggling with doubt Genuinely struggling in your faith, like the disciples who would say, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And full-blown cynicism, which we might see here. This generation wants a miraculous sign before they'll commit to following Jesus. Now, what, that, what might that question look like for ourselves? Well, maybe it's very similar. 
Maybe you've been asking Jesus to show up, asking Jesus to show up, asking for a sign, asking for a sign, and you've been just ignoring all of the ways in which he's been showing up in your life. Or maybe it looks a little more subtle. You know, in Santa Barbara, I often like to, we often use this language to describe the cultural milieu here in Santa Barbara as being high consumption and low commitment. That's the culture. And that's the culture we swim in and are fighting all the time. There's so much here to consume. There's so much to entertain. There's so many options. There's so much to fill your plate that it can be very difficult to commit to something. And when that comes to Jesus, Jesus, at least in Santa Barbara, can easily be an add-on. A nice thing that we add to the rest of what we have. But the moment that he becomes inconvenient or it gets difficult, we can pull away and stop, whether that's following him or fellowshipping with one another. Maybe sometimes our faith is based on unmet expectations. I thought, Jesus, you would get me a house and a great job and perfect friends and an undramatic church and beautiful, you know, all the list of things. And maybe instead... We follow Jesus and we encountered suffering or tribulation. I think the list can be pretty long, but what would that question look like for us? In what way does the generation here, does our generation constantly seek more from Jesus before we're willing to get into the boat with him? I'll leave that to you to ponder with the Holy Spirit and your own fellowship and community. But I do want us to notice the stark difference between the Pharisees and the disciples. We're not talking here about not having doubt, not having real, honest, genuine questions, not questioning things. I'm not talking about that. I think there's space for that. I think that comes from a place of faith. What I'm talking about is a hardened, calloused cynicism. We're asking Jesus questions you don't really care about his answers. You've already made up your mind. And that's the Pharisees, right? And I want you to notice what verse 13 says. And he left them. And he left them. Got into the boat again, went to the other side. Uh, Jesus, it's almost as if Jesus was like, you know, there's, you know, his brush in his hands. He's like, there's nothing really I can do here. This is to the Pharisees, this is a waste of your time and this is a waste of mine. I'm going to find a group of people that are more responsive. If we were on that boat with Jesus heading towards the Channel Islands of heaven, and there was a freighter on the left side, I think on the side of that freighter it would say cynicism. Right? Why does this generation seek a sign? They're not really looking for an answer. They're just cynical. Just questioning things to question things. And out of that cynicism is a rejection. How do you guard yourself from cynicism? When you've been taking blows over and over, when life has not matched your expectations, when friends have hurt you, when you've been disappointed, when God seems to be silent, that hurt can easily take a deep, bitter root, right? And over time, that root is hard to dig up. 
Now you're not just asking faith-filled questions. Now you're just responding in hurt. You know that phrase, hurt people hurt people. Cynicism, bitterness. How do you guard against that? I recall to mind the uh, passage in Hebrews 12, verse 15. This is from the New Living Translation. The author of Hebrews says, look after each other. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. One of the first things the Bible tells us, watch out for each other. Don't let anyone fall off the wayside. Check up on your spouse. Check up on your kids. Check up on your your dad, your mom, your uncle, your friend, your neighbor, your fellow student. Check up on each other. Make sure no one falls short of the grace of God and watch out that no poisonous root grows up to trouble you. Part of it is awareness. Part of it is community and fellowship. Watch out for each other. The problem, uh, the second problem, is not cynicism, which leads to rejection, but it's found in that second line that Jesus gives us. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. Watch out for the leaven of Herod. Leaven is a, another word for yeast. And it says in verse 14, now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat and he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, yeast in that culture was also symbolic of corruption. And so there's a, way, a, a manner of speaking in which Jesus is just saying, be careful as you're following me, you don't want to get sucked into bitterness and cynicism that leads to outright rejection, but you also don't want to get sucked into corruption which leads to compromise. Now, what is he saying? I, he doesn't go too deep into this. Perhaps he's warning them about getting stuck in religious tradition. He's bringing up the Pharisees, after all. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. Tradition isn't bad. It's actually a very good thing, but it becomes a bad thing when it's the ultimate thing and closes us off to hearing the fresh words of the Holy Spirit and the way of Jesus. So perhaps that's what his, his warning is. He also brings up the corrupting power of Herod. So maybe he's speaking about politics and the empire. Maybe he's saying, hey, I want you to be a good citizen, but I also am calling you to be a citizen of heaven first and foremost. That's what Philippians would say. So don't compromise. Remember who you are. Don't let that be your main source of identity. You don't belong to Herod and you don't belong to Caesar. You belong to me. And so do your due, your due duty and diligence remember whose you belong to. And so if we were to look off to the right, or for you, your left, we would see another freighter coming our way in our little sailboat. Maybe on the side it would say corruption, or I'd rather change that to compromise. So as we're going in this direction as a church community, following Jesus together, knowing that where he's bringing us is good because it's the Messiah and everything he does is good. We are also aware by the warning of Jesus to watch out for the obstacles, watch out for the freighters to each side, what's on them. One, we would say, is cynicism, maybe bitterness resulting in rejection. On the other is compromise. 
On one side, you, there's a, a fear of being so hurt and wounded and cynical and bitter that you outright reject perhaps God, maybe your fellow believer, your fellowship, your family. On the other is not an outright rejection, but a, a dilution, if I could call it that. You're just compromising. Compromising your values, compromising what you know to be the truth. And right in the middle, in that tiny little boat, Jesus has his disciples, and he's giving them another option. That is to be immersed in the words and life of Jesus together. This is where I want to pick up Jesus' specific conversation with the disciples in verse 16. It says, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. This is where the story gets a little funny and ironic. The disciples are literally thinking Jesus is blaming them for not bringing a snack, right? They just left a huge feast, a miraculous one. And they notice that they only have one loaf of bread in the boat. And Jesus right then says, watch out for the bread of the Pharisees. And their immediate reaction is, oh, he's mad at us. We forgot to bring bread. We don't have enough bread. What are we going to, are we going to eat on the other side? And Jesus, aware of this, verse 17, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Come on, guys. Do not yet perceive or understand, are your hearts that hardened? Come on, guys. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember it? By the way, I just love how comprehensive Jesus' response is to them. Why are you, why are you discussing this? Is your, is, your, is your conversation lacking? Do you not yet perceive? Are you, are you low in awareness? Are your hearts hardened? Why are you reacting in this way? Do you not see? Is, is your understanding lacking? Do you not hear? Is your memory lacking? Like he's, his, his response to them is so comprehensive. Your conversation, your awareness, your reaction, your understanding, your hearing, your memory, has it not yet been saturated by who I am? At this point in our journey, come on, guys. And then he reminds them about that miraculous feeding. He says in, at the end of verse 18, do you not remember what just happened? Like literally minutes ago. When I broke the five loaves for the five thousands, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they answered him. I, I, I imagine, I'm speculating here, but I just imagine like school kids, you know, with like an air of embarrassment, like in front of their teachers being like 12 leftovers and the seven the seven loaves that we had for 4,000 people an impossible task do you remember how many baskets full of leftovers we ended up with after that seven do you see what's going on Jesus is like did you already forget you're arguing over a single loaf of bread you're already in a place of scarcity and lack do you not remember what I just did do you not think I can take that single loaf of hardened bread and turn it into a feast? Do you not yet understand? And at this moment, it seems that Jesus is actually going far deeper than just the bread. This is not a conversation about leaven and yeast anymore. 
They just left basketfuls of God's provision on the other side of the, uh, on the, other side of the lake. Basketfuls of God's holy provision. And I love, like, look at, look at what verse 14 says. Now they had forgotten to bring the bread. And they had only one loaf left with them in the, in the boat. Now they had forgotten to bring the bread. The reason I laugh at that line and it also half stings is because this is such a, this is such a reflection of my life sometimes. Leaving abundant blessing and provision by the hand of God who is always faithful, and I forget to bring it with me. I forget to bring it with me. They forget to bring the bread, they have one loaf with them in the boat, and the disciples who are doubting the sufficiency of Jesus in the boat are being reminded by him that he is the Son of God. He's the only one who can miraculously feed thousands and can, in fact, feed them too. If there's anything you could take from this passage, it's that Jesus Christ is also in the boat with you. And perhaps some of you are bowled over in anxiety and frustration saying, I forgot to bring the bread. What am I gonna do when I get to the other side? I've got freighters and obstacles coming at me from both angles. I'm gonna get over there. I don't even know if I'm gonna make it. Even if I do make it, I don't know what I'm gonna do when I make it. I don't know how I'm gonna survive. I don't know what I'm gonna do on Monday. I don't know how I'm gonna get through this week. And Jesus is right there in the boat looking down on you with compassion saying, it's not about the bread. Do you not remember? Can you not perceive? Do you not know who I am yet? I'm not just a rabbi. I'm not just a good teacher. I'm not just a prophet. I'm the son of God, and I can turn a wafer into a feast, and I am in the boat with you. I think Jesus wants to impress that on somebody's heart today. The same one who can miraculously feed thousands can, in fact, feed you too. Maybe for some of you, it's actual bread. You need to put bread on the table tomorrow and you don't know how you're gonna make ends meet. Jesus is in the boat with you. He can also sustain you. The one who is in the boat with you can help you. He can empower you. He can give you peace when you have no peace. He can give you joy. He can calm the storm around you. He can calm the storm in you. He can cast out the demons you're battling. He can speak life into your weary life. He can break every chain. He can change the things that you can't change about yourself. He can defeat the devil, sin, and the grave. He can hold the universe together by the word of his power, by his word. The universe is held together by his word. Just, I don't even know what that looks like. like there's just like the words of Jesus holding molecules together. I don't know. That's precisely the point. He's the son of the living God and he's got the entire world in his hand. I'm almost gonna break out into that nursery song, but I will spare you. And how silly, like if we could just back up and just realize for a second how silly it must look for God's kids to be in the boat just being like, I forgot my bread. What am I gonna do? I've got one loaf. And Jesus is right above you just being like, chill. Do you even know who I am? It's not about the bread. 
These miracles point not to the bread, but to one particular thing. And Mark opened the gospel saying this. Mark chapter one, verse one says, this is the beginning of the gospel announcement of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what the gospel of Mark is about. That's what all of his miracles are about too. It's to grab your attention and to say, the guy who's in your boat can handle anything that comes your way. And the invitation I think that's here for us is that even though he'll take care of you, even though he'll provide, maybe what some of us need to hear, what the disciples certainly needed to hear in that moment was, don't get so caught up in the provision that you miss the one who provides. I love the line that he asks in verse 18, do you not remember? Maybe that's a line we should practice asking ourselves as a practice of spiritual self-awareness. Do I not remember? Do I not remember? Don't be so distracted by the blessing or the lack of it that you meet the blesser, who despite what you might be seeing in your circumstances, remains in the boat. There will never be a shortage of bread so long as Jesus is in your boat. Now, church, as we're in a boat together, we look on one side, we might see rejection. And on the other side is compromise, easy way out, right in the middle. What I think the story is trying to give us a picture of is right in the middle of the boat is a third option. Nursery school answer, what's the answer? Jesus. And some of us will be tempted to distance ourselves, maybe from God, maybe to take a break from God for a while, but maybe for others it's just a little less, a little more subtle. Maybe it's to distance ourselves from each other. What God has called us to are responsibilities to one another. And then on the other side of the boat, some of us will be tempted to believe, but to water it down and to compromise. I think what Jesus is inviting us to do is to, what he's been inviting disciples to do for centuries, follow him in the context of his disciples and to allow our identity as a church community to continue to be formed and identified around him together. This is why we do this. I'm pretty convinced that one of the main functions of a Sunday morning is to remember together. Because it's so easy to forget the basics on Monday, right? Even if nothing profound were to happen on a Sunday morning, even if the skies didn't open and, you know, rays of light were, weren't bouncing across the halls, even if your heart wasn't enlivened and the hairs on the back of your neck didn't raise up in emotion, even if none of that happened, if you were just reminded by your fellow believers, your fellow brothers and sisters, that Jesus is the son of God, he's a king, he's a good one, and he's in your boat, then we've done this right. I love that John chapter three, verse 16 says, everybody who believes in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. I used to think of believing as simply like a, 
finding something agreeable, like that two plus two equals four. But that word that John uses in, uh, in John chapter three, verse 16, is literally to believe into something. The Greek preposition there is referring to a direction, a goal, a resting place of a particular person, meaning that to believe in Jesus doesn't just mean you find certain things agreeable about him, but that you are actively moving in his direction. That means when you doubt, when you struggle, you can do so in a way that, that believes into Jesus. How do you do that? You invite Jesus into your pain. You invite him into your struggle. You invite like-minded people into that struggle too. And you face all of those difficult questions. You face all of those difficult challenges while making space for Jesus to be there as well. Believing into that person. I want you to note that if you're having a hard time with this, I want you to note two things. One, Jesus sends the Pharisees away for their outright rejection and compromise. But you ever notice that he never sends the disciples away? They may struggle with him at times. In fact, one of them, the loudest mouth of them all, will outright reject, reject him three times and deny him at his moment of need. And Jesus never denies them. And he'll never deny you as well. They may struggle, even struggle with the words of Jesus and the actions of Jesus at times, but there always seems to be this flame burning inside them to understand. And eventually, they will understand. A few verses later, in Mark chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus asks the disciples, what are people saying about me? And they respond, they, some people think you're John the Baptist, others think you're Elijah, some of them say you're a prophet. And he asks them, who do you say I am? Good old Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. They'll eventually understand who he is, but what I want you to see is that Jesus walks with them the entire time, even when they don't. And maybe that's where you're at right now. Maybe you don't know what to think or believe. And I want you to find comfort in the fact that Jesus is still walking with you. And at every corner that you find, I pray that instead of walking away from him, you will turn towards him and that we could do this together as we walk together with Jesus. He'll give us understanding. Now, there's a broad corporate way of doing this as I ask uh, Robert. Robert, you can come up as we posture ourselves to respond with singing. For us as a church, that might be this reality check coming up this afternoon. Come to that as we walk together with Jesus. On a more individual level, actually I should say corporate level, but a more immediate response would be through singing and through prayer, turning to one another, perhaps turning to someone at the side who's ready to pray and just asking God for help in time of need. Also want to point to the fact that we sing every week, week after week after week. We also take a communion you remember the words of Jesus to say, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And hear the words of, of Jesus in verse 18 to the disciples, but also to us. Do you not remember? And maybe you haven't remembered. Maybe you've forgotten the grace of God towards you. 
his tremendous love towards you in the midst of all of the chaos and the confusion and the pain that you're going through in a variety of different things that you're facing. Maybe you've forgotten. And I want you to hear the gracious and compassionate words of Jesus towards you. Do you not remember? And as we sing, we remind ourselves of the things that we've forgotten about the reckless love of God towards broken people like us. We remember that he is the best thing that we've ever encountered in this life, and we sing it loudly and proudly. We also take of the bread and of the cup, reminding ourselves of his body and his blood that was shed. And week after week after week after week, with rhythm, we tell each other, we proclaim to each other and to ourselves, Jesus Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again, and he's in the boat with us. And as a church, we say loudly and with great faith, amen.